0: Hi, I'm Vishen Lakhiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Mind Valley fans, welcome to another episode of the Mind Valley podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about how to be okay with risk. If you think about the world today, the world is. Changing at an exponential rate. And you've heard about these concepts, risk taker, being able to be okay with risk. How do you overcome the fears or the stress associated with taking risk at the other side of risk? They might be great rewards, but risk can sometimes unnervous, make us feel unsafe. It can cause incredible strain. The topic of this podcast is going to be how to be okay with taking risk and making decisions that might be risky, but that might have a big upside. And I'm so excited about our guest today. Well, firstly, she has a degree from the University of Edinburgh and a PhD in economics from Columbia University. She has written for The Economist, Wired, The National Review, and Playboy. She was awarded the 2016 Society for American Business Editors and Writers Award for her feature writing in Quartz magazine. And her new book is called, get this, An Economist Walks into a Brothel. So, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast, Allison Schrager. Allison, so good to have you here.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Allison, first, what's up with the title of your book? I mean, I love it. We thought it was hilarious, but I'm curious to know.
1: Well, I spent a lot of time in brothels, and
0: wait, what? You you can't just start a sentence like that and not elaborate.
1: Well, as I said, I am an economist who studies retirement, which is a risk problem. And I had this idea that good risk taking didn't just happen in retirement planning. It happened everywhere. So I seeked out some, you know, really quirky industries to see how they manage risk and how they think about risk to help understand, you know, my risk problem better. And it turns out to help everyone understand risk better.
0: So first, let's talk about risk, right? So what were you doing in a brothel? I mean, the book is called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. What were you studying in a brothel?
1: Well, initially, the brothel invited me out there to learn negotiation skills because they have a negotiation training program because every transaction is individually negotiated. And so they wanted the women to become better negotiators. So they train them in their negotiation skills. And that's something I've always struggled with. Like, I've always had this fear of hearing no or like feeling like if I ask for more money at a job, it would make working there uncomfortable. So they have the same issue. You can imagine like you're asked for more money before you have sex with someone. I mean, it is a fairly fraught situation. So they train them in negotiation skills. So they invited me out there to learn that. And I was just really struck by what great businesswomen they were and how much money they could charge. And it turned out they could get away with charging all this money because it's a fairly safe transaction and that you pay more and you know, you don't have to worry about getting caught by the police. This is a sort of public humiliation. This is on the customer side. So It turns out it's just like any other market, particularly a financial market, where if you pay more, you reduce your risk. And this is like the central theme in finance is you can take risk and get more for less, or you can pay more and reduce your risk.
0: I see. Okay. So when we talk about how to be okay with risk, what would be some of the advice that you would have for the people listening? And let's talk about risk in the moment. Why are risk important in the first place?
1: Well, our lives will not move forward unless we take risk. I mean, it's not something we can hide from. And the more risk we take, the more we'll get out of life. Like think about having a relationship, you know, is a huge emotional risk but you know, ultimately it means you're for a more satisfying life. Your career isn't going to move forward unless you take bigger risks. But I think we often get the wrong message with risks. We don't really educate people on what risk is. So what my book does is it has five main lessons of how to take risk and how to take risk in the right way. Because what we do in retirement finance or in finance in general is people don't just take huge risks or not, although that's certainly how we like to think of it is it's always like, how do you choose what risks are the right ones to take? And how do you take just the right balance of risk and safety? So you get what you want without having to take any more risks than you have to, but can still get the most out of life.
0: So have you noticed in your research that there's a high correlation between people who are risk takers and people who are really doing well in their careers and in life?
1: Although as I said, like, the more risk you take, the more you have potential for. But I don't think it's true. I talked to one CEO who, you know, has risen to the top of his industry. And we like to think of these people as being these bold risk takers who just forge ahead. But really, the business leaders I spoke to or the military generals I spoke to don't just take risks that way. I said they balance risk and reward. They're strategic about when they take risk. And when they do take risks, they do things to mitigate the chance things will go badly or don't take any more risks than they need to. So they I'm not afraid of risk, but I said there's this huge middle ground between risk taking and not risk taking. And I think that's more where we should live of learning to take risks, feel more comfortable, take more risks. But knowing we don't have to take enormous risks all the time.
0: So give me an example. Like when is risk taking something that we should be doing?
1: It can be large and small things. It can be even less time to go to the airport. It could be, as I said, pursuing a new relationship. It could be raising your hand for a project at work that you feel like might not go well, but if you do well, might lead to a promotion. There's big and small risks we can take every day.
0: Okay. And what are some pieces of advice that you might have for someone listening on how to be more okay with taking risks?
1: You know, I go through in the book, a lot of very sophisticated strategies that I've learned over the years studying finance, but there is one thing that I think 90% of all successful risk taking just comes down to something so simple, but it's also so hard. And that is when you take a risk, knowing what you're taking a risk for, like having a very clear objective of, you know, if I take a risk, I will get this. And this is what I want. I think often we just feel like I need a change from take a risk or I'm unhappy. So I'm going to, end my relationship. I'm going to quit my job. But that doesn't really lead to successful risk taking. What you need is you need to be very clear. All right, this is what I'm looking for in a relationship. This is what I'm looking for in a job and actually going after that. And I tell the story of this one CEO in America called Kat Cole, who had an incredibly successful career. She worked her way up from a waitress at Hooters to becoming the CEO of these huge private equity firms. And What she does is she always has this very clear goal. So I tell the story of how she took over when she was just 30, a fairly large pastry company called Cinnabon, and they wanted to come up with a new diet cinnamon roll because they were losing sales and no one wanted to have 800 calories in a cinnamon roll. So they were going to come up with this diet roll. And she's like, but the goal is to increase sales, not have a diet roll for the sake of having a diet roll. And this is disgusting and no one's going to eat it. So she's like, let's just shrink it. And that actually seems so obvious, but it was a risk because you know people, they're worried that a smaller role they'd have to charge less and they would end up decreasing revenue. But she's like, no, it will increase revenue because we'll get more customers. And she was right. But it was so clear to her. She takes these risks all the time. But. They're always really smart risks because she always has a goal. She's like, The goal is to increase revenue. The goal is to move my career forward. And this is what I want out of a career. And that makes it so much easier. But then again, it's also hard because you have to know exactly what you want, like what you want out of life. And that takes a lot of clarity that I think a lot of us don't have.
0: I see. I see. Okay. Now, if you had to give advice to people, a couple of steps that can make them more tolerant for risk and to be better risk takers, what would your words of wisdom be?
1: I have five basic rules. One, just know what you're taking a risk for. Be clear on that. Be clear what the risks are. What kind of risks are it? I mean, in finance, we have two broad kinds of risk. There's idiosyncratic risk, which is this just risk unique to you. You know, if you take a job, are you nervous that this particular job is not going to be a good fix? You don't like the bus because you don't like the culture? Or is it what we call systematic risk? Are you taking this job and you're worried that this whole position is going to be taken over by a robot in a year? So you want to think about those two different kinds of risk because they have different strategies of how to mitigate them. The next one is thinking through our behavioral biases. We have these behavioral biases that trip up our risk taking. It could be when we're losing, we're fear lost so much, we double down and take more risks than we should have. So you have to go in feeling like even if I take a risk and it doesn't initially work out, I'm not going to double down and take more risks than I initially was comfortable with. You have to be consistent.
0: In your book, you talk about poker champions, right? And as the stacks of money pile up, they have to factor in their own irrational behaviors, which are going to get more and more irrational as the stakes get higher.
1: Totally. So I spoke to this very famous poker player Bill who's, you know, known for being an irrational person. He throws a tantrum every time he loses. He's not exactly known for being this calm, cool, collected guy. But when he plays, he is. You know, he's able to overcome all of his natural inclinations and be very consistent, whether he's down or whether he's up. He only plays 12 percent of his hands, but most poker players pay 30 percent. And he does this exactly what I'm saying by, like, mitigating his risk. He goes into these huge poker tournaments where the buy in might be a million dollars but he makes sure other people's money is on the line. Or he cuts these little side deals with the other players so he always has a guaranteed payoff. And this means he never has that much at stake anyway, it appears he does. And this keeps him from being irrational. So this is what I mean of this middle ground. It appears like he's this huge risk player going to these huge poker tournaments, but really he goes in with just enough risk that he's comfortable with. And this has propelled him forwards. I think he's won more World Series of poker more than anyone else.
0: Oh, awesome. Okay. So the first rule was know what you're risking, know what the risk is about. The second rule is be aware of the irrational behavior and the psychology that's going to take place in your head as you go into a risk-taking situation.
1: Exactly. You know, I mean, there's a lot of written about behavioral finance and how we're so irrational, but there's also a lot of evidence that when we're aware of these biases and aware of these behaviors and have experience doing more risk taking, that they tend to be less prevalent, that people tend to make these good, consistent choices. The more risk we take, the better we get at it. And the more aware we are of our biases, the more we can overcome them.
0: What you're saying is the more risk we take, the less irrational we become when taking those risks.
1: Yes, there's a lot of evidence that people take risk regularly, like traders, there's a great paper on people who trade sports memorabilia, tend to be very consistent with their risk. Or Phil, he realized when he was a very young poker player that he was never going to be successful unless he overcame these biases. I mean, there's stories about him passing out from exhaustion of trying to keep his emotions in check, but it's really been critical to his success.
0: Amazing. All right. Now, what is point number three? Point
1: number three is don't take any more risk than necessary. And by that, I mean diversify. In finance, we think of risk as the cost for more reward. But at the same time, you can take more risk than you need to to get to your goal. And that's considered inefficient. It's just like paying too much for something when there's no reason to overpay. So in finance, it comes down to, well, you have two portfolios. They both have the same expected reward, but one's riskier than the other. Never buy that one. But we could think about that in any area of our life. I mean, sometimes just you have two options. The next story I tell is I, I live in New York City. And to get across town, you can take a bus, which on average takes about 25 minutes, but it could take anywhere really between maybe 15 minutes and 40 minutes because of traffic and people getting on and off and all these things, as opposed to walking always takes 25 minutes exactly. So it's like, why take the bus? You get the same benefit, but for taking less risk. But generally, you know, you don't have the options that clear in finance. We can get rid of excess risk by diversifying. And this can happen in any area of your life. It could be when you're single dating multiple people. I tell the story of horse breeders in Kentucky who are not diversifying enough because they've been inbreeding their horses much more. And as a result, you're getting these like freaky horses.
0: Got it. So diversification is essential. And I guess this also applies to investments, having a diverse portfolio.
1: Exactly. Because in finance, if you underdiversify your portfolio, you're taking more risk than you need to. You get a lower return and more risk.
0: Perfect. Now, what about tip number four?
1: Tip number four is how to manage the downside. And there's two different ways you can do this. So this is about calibrating and taking the exact amount of risk. One is hedging, which is breaking up your investments between risky and risk-free portfolios and figuring out the right balance. And the way you're supposed to do that in finance is figuring out your goal and taking exactly enough risk to get there. And this could be, as I said, an example of a hedge is if you bet against your favorite sports team. If they win, you're happy, but oh, you're a little less happy because you have to you know, give someone money. So that would be a hedge. On the other hand, if they lose, at least you got some money out of it. So you kind of have balanced it. Of course, you can always flip it around and you can bet on your sports team. And that would be like the equivalent of taking leverage in financial market. If you win, you're doubly happy, but if you lose, you're doubly upset. So you've enhanced your risk. The other way is insurance. And that's a little different And that with hedging, you give up some of that upside. Like if you are half in bonds and half in stocks and stocks go way up, you give up some of that return. With insurance, what you do is you pay someone, they take all your downside risk, and the rest is all up to you. If the stock market takes off, you get all of that minus whatever fee you've paid for them to take on your downside risk. So you've gotten rid of downside and you get all the upside. Of course, you have to pay for that. And whether or not it's worth it is question. And we see this all the time. Like if you go hiking and you carry extra water, that's insurance against getting dehydrated. Anytime we sort of have that plan in the back of our head is how we insurance and for that chapter, I actually went to a big wave surfing risk conference. Big wave surfers get together and talk about risk, it turns out, once a year. And so their big insurance are jet skis. So they're sitting there in the water, and if they wipe out, it's there to rescue them. So it's insurance. Of course, the downside of it is two things. One, it makes them feel safer, so they end up taking bigger risks. And two, just like a stock option, it's insurance, but it can also be used as leverage. They also use the jet skis to push them on bigger waves they could not possibly surf which also means they take bigger risks and sometimes they should. And so this is why they have an annual conference is they're debating, you know, what is responsible risk-taking and who bears responsibility for that.
0: I see. Okay, so we have know why you're doing it, be conscious of your biases, diversify, hedge, and the fifth tip,
1: is also be aware that risks are a plan for everything you can imagine happening. But sometimes things happen that you just never anticipated. Ultimately, we're taking guesses about the future, and the future is always unknowable. So, the last one is just leave just enough room for flexibility to be able to change your plans. So, for that story, I spent time with a military general. The military, in any country is obsessed with risk planning because the more they plan, the cheaper it is to fight wars and they like predictability. But war is always uncertain. Things never go down how you expect. So the constant struggle in the military or in finance or anything is how to plan, but also, leave just enough room in case things go wrong. Like the man who taught me finance is Robert Merton. He's partially known for having this huge hedge fund that almost took down the whole economy because they planned for all these risk things that happened and then Russia devalued its currency and then they had all these risks they didn't ever anticipate. And it's particularly dangerous if you take on a lot of leverage. So, if you've borrowed a lot to make an investment, you have no flexibility. That's why debt can be very dangerous. So the key is always having enough liquidity. And this can happen in any plan. In the military, this means really training your soldiers to be able to make decisions on the fly sometimes and be able to abandon plans and have the confidence that they know when they situations have changed and to change their plan.
0: I see. Well, these are wonderful five tips. Now, as you were talking about them, I was thinking about how to apply them in my life. And this is what came to me. And I'd love to share it here with the Mind Valley audience, because I think it'll be interesting to see how we've been thinking about it. So we have this big studio that we put out for a week in LA and a week in New York every year. And it costs a bomb. It's like a freaking epic studio. But this is where we bring in top tier teachers and we produce episodes for our program, Mind Valley Mentoring. And we are slowly leveling up to Netflix quality. But I think the five principles that you are sharing, I can apply directly in the decision making I have to make as we are creating this new studio. For example, we know why we're doing it. We want to create the best quality content out there. But at the same time, I like point number two, which is be conscious of your subconscious biases. So for example, there've been many situations where we bring in a big name, famous celebrity to film and they suck. And you wanna bring them in because you know that you've read about them and you've seen the success they do. And they may be a big name entrepreneur, but when you bring them onto the set, they are not consciously competent of why they're successful. And, you know, they spew out stuff that isn't going to resonate with our audience. So we are conscious of that. That's point number two. So the first one is know why we're doing it. We want to up level. Number two, be conscious of the biases in our case towards big name authors who might not be as good as a teacher as someone you've heard less about. Third, diversify. We try to bring in a variety of authors knowing that roughly five to 10% aren't going to make the cut after the filming. Fourth, we hedge our risk rather than have an elaborate set and have a situation where you need hours upon hours upon hours of preparation to film someone, sometimes a celebrity suddenly says, yes, a dream author that we want to bring on. And we have to be flexible and make time for them to pop in during their busy lives. And so hedging means we have a set that is not as perfect as we want it to be, but it sure is flexible. And fifth, expect the unexpected. Sometimes the cancellation, sometimes the power goes out, sometimes someone trips the lights. So I found that what you just shared so applies to the big conversations I had today with my team on how we are going to be setting up our next studio in New York. And I wanted to share that with those of you listening so you kind of understand what's going on behind the scenes as you're consuming Mind Valley products and how we can maybe take these five ideas, know why you're doing it, be conscious of your Unconscious biases, diversify, hedge, and expect the unexpected. How you can apply these five things into your decision making process. So, thank you for this conversation, guys. Thank you for joining the Mind Valley podcast. And Allison's book is An Economist Walks into a Brothel. Try to forget that title. I bet you can't. You'll find it on Amazon. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you.